We all lift a hand up if you got a seat open by you still. Got a little floor space if you might want some floor space up here. Last week in our in our beginning, we suggested that what we want to try to do this term is think about practices for living well, practices for living a good life. And we noted that uh, we don't, um, if you go back to people like Augustine and you go back to people like Aquinas, um, Augustine says very explicitly in his book, The Confessions, which is one of those great classics of Western Christian tradition, um, that the point of living life is to live a happy life. And he doesn't say this in some sort of uh, American consumerist indulgent version of happiness. He means this in that the notion of happiness is grounded very deeply in friendship with God and friendship with one another. And that the notion of happiness is not something that we ought to be fearful of, but that in fact living a happy life is the hallmark of what it means to pursue love of God and love of neighbor. This, um, one of the things that has been interesting in my own journey in the Christian tradition is that as a child, whether, whether my church was telling me this, yes or no, this is what I came to believe. And that is that the meaning of Christianity was uh, if you do the right things, and you do the right things, you can go to heaven when you die. When I became a college student, then I became something more like a, a, an American evangelical. And that is, then all of a sudden I began to realize, no, I'm saved by grace through faith, not by works. And there you have it. Uh, I'll get to go to heaven not because I do the right things, but because God loves me and forgives me and will let me go to heaven. Um, but then I sojourned among Catholics and Anabaptists for a while, and they, had, uh, they, they complicated it all the more. And both of those groups suggest that grace is not simply a legal category of forgiveness. Grace is not simply being told, well, you broke the rule, so you're forgiven for the rule. Grace, for Catholics and Anabaptists, is the gift of being able to live a different kind of life. That's a beautiful life. That's a good life. Um, so, so there's this notion then that grace is not simply pardon, but power. Now once I learned that, and then I would read things like Romans 8. You know, remember Romans 6, 7, and 8? Romans 6 and 7 is this classic description of being in bondage. Uh, I know the right thing to do but I don't do what I want to do, I do the thing I do not want to do. Isn't that wild language to think about a, you know, the great apostle Paul saying that? He's saying I, that, the, that the problem is not necessarily knowledge of what's good. For him, it's I know what the right thing to do is and I know what's good and even I want to do it. He says my problem is I can't do what I want to do. I do the very thing I do not want to do. And so he ends with this exasperated note at the end of chapter 7 where he says, Oh dear God, who will deliver me from this body of death? What kind of change can I get? And then in Romans 8, he describes the possibility of living, of not living under what he calls the law of sin and death that he's just described in Romans 6 and 7. But I would get exasperated when I would read Romans 8. Because I would think, well that sounds beautiful. 
but I would get to the end of the chapter because you remember he changes the subject in chapter 9 and he starts talking about the Jews, Israel. So I get to the end of Romans 8 where he's described this beautiful possibility. And time after time, I remember reading it and slamming the Bible shut and saying, How? <laughs> Fine, Paul, but how? Well, one of the... Um, in the last numbers of years, one of the things that has been suggested last 20 years or so, and this is true among some evangelicals, is that um, they've suggested, I'm thinking about people like, um, I want to say, not Richard Foster, but who's the, who's the other guy that wrote um, some of the books like him? Dallas Willard. Who, Dallas Willard. Where Dallas Willard would talk about um, one of the reasons that um, Paul didn't answer the why question was because he was a good Jew and Jews in the first century knew things that we don't know in the 20th century, in the 21st century. Namely, that grace comes through practices. That grace comes through practices. And so that's why you have this whole, in the last 20 years, the revival of what we call the spiritual formation movement. Uh, so they have lots of talk about spiritual formation. So what do we mean by that? Well, what they mean by that is that as we submit to certain practices, as we practice certain practices, these things change us. They change our wiring and our minds. They change our disposition. They change our skills and our habits so that we're able to live in the world in a different sort of way. So that cr grace then can come into us so that we're no longer trapped in the I do what I don't want to do. But we can begin to have experiences why we don't always do what we don't want to do. Sometimes we're still going to slip. But we're not in bondage to it like we used to be in bondage to it. So, this class then is, is, is asking ourselves a question. What are some practices from what we're calling the, uh, the wisdom tradition? Seen in Proverbs, seen in reading the Sermon on the Mount that way, in the book of James. What are practices that are being described here that might allow us to have a channel of grace into our lives? and us actually practice them as a group and talk about it some. Um, so obviously, all we can do is kind of just get a little glimpse of practices, right? So you have to decide which of these are going to be best for you to practice the most and work on the most and to talk about with other people. Uh, I've discovered, for me at least, that I can't make very much good progress in any new practices in my life unless I'm talking about it with people uh, because there's a certain notion of, of, of giving an account that allows me to grow in those things. So you have to decide for yourself, you know, if that's a good thing for you. Um, so last week, Laura did a great job talking to us about the practice of, um, of learning to listen more, uh, to be silent more, to uh, not need to tell the story to one-up the story you're listening to, uh, to listen to the person who's talking without having to think about what you need to say back. Um, to not even think you need to insert yourself into a conversation. So, um, how many of you were here last week? Okay, so you all you all had the homework assignment. All the rest of you got a pass for this week since you weren't here last week. But if you're here next week, you will have a homework assignment as well. So this is where we're going to do this. Uh, we're going to do a little um, pedagogical device I like called Think, Pair, Share. It goes this way. Uh, I'm going to give you a question, and you think about it for 60 seconds. Then you talk to a person around you who's not your spouse or significant partner or other, okay? So you're finding somebody around you to talk to, so that's the pair part. And then you're going to share with them your answer to the question. 
and you get only about 30 to 45 seconds each, right? So this is not, this is not, uh, hopefully introverts can handle this as well, because um, you don't have to talk very much. And matter of fact, if you play your cards right, you won't even have to talk at all. <laughs> By getting the other person to talk first, right, and to egg them on a little bit. Tell me more about that. Okay, so here's, so first thing, we're in, in silence, and then, and then when I call time, uh, go ahead and figure out who you're going to talk to. Let's do this first. So everybody identify you're going to talk to that's not your spouse. Oh, okay. Alright. Everybody good? Does anyone not have a conversation partner? Anybody not have a conversation partner? Be brave and raise your hand if you don't. Jim Arnett does not have one. Anybody back there that can talk to Jim? Good. Anybody else not have a conversation partner? Okay, good. Here's the think part. Uh, think about this week uh, where you tried to be quiet and listen and what you learned out of that or saw out of that, whether you failed or whether you succeeded, uh, an occasion where you tried to listen and did well or did not do well, what you learned out of it. Repeat the question, please. Yeah, uh, it's a very ironic. Yeah. I only heard like half of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kelly, stop talking. Listen. Let your partner listen. Uh, think this about an occasion this week where you tried to listen and you chose not to talk. What did you learn out of that experience about yourself? All right, share with your, uh, about 30 seconds for each of you. Share with whoever you're sharing with.
are passing, if you didn't get a sign up on the email list for last week, uh, I'll pass this around both sides. Please, whoever has it at the end, please get it back to the front of the room when you're done at the end of class period, please. And this is if we did do it last week. If you did not do it last week and you want to sign up, feel free. Uh, all right. Sounds like some good lively conversation. Somebody would like to share with the group as a whole what you learned out of your experiment? I learned what the other person was saying was very boring. <laughs> I, uh, I like to redirect the conversation to where I want it to go and not insert or one up, you know, but just kind of, well, that's great, but let's talk about this. And I kept thinking while I was listening, and this guy's mumbling and bumbling, and I, I just don't care what he's talking about. But I just, I just let it go, and just silence fell, and we just walked away. <laughs> Congratulations! That's very, very fine. Thank you. I learned I felt more present and less crazy because I'm just doing one thing at a time. washer and dryer delivered and all the they didn't bring all the parts and put it together and, anyway, and normally I would have kind of gone off on the guy or maybe really gone off on the guy <laughs> and, uh, instead I listened to what he said that he was only the delivery guy and he could only he only brought what they told him to bring and what was on the list and it wasn't his fault and I said thank you and what do we do next and he told me and I found listening to another person and trying to listen to God were completely different experiences. Uh, I found it much easier to listen to another person and uh, just free myself of trying to come up with some sort of response, just engage. And, I saw nonverbals better, and I just was. But then, the problem was with trying to quiet my mind and listen to God. Undone responsibilities flooded in, and uh, anxiety showed up, and just all manner of. It was. A, those are not the same things for me. Yeah, thank you for that, because that was the other thing that Lauren mentioned last week that I forgot to mention. The summary is um, maybe in prayer that we talk less as well, and um, simply listen more. Use fewer words. Good. Thanks, Chris. Anyone else? Yeah, I find out when I go to work, when I open up, ask a closing question, I get a closing answer. Then I ask an opening question, and the more I become, the quieter I am, the more I do Mm. Just let the person land it. And sometimes they would hurt themselves. It would be evidence that I'm trying to do So, so just being quiet and, and just ask the other question. They tell you everything. And sometimes they really give people a chance. Thank you. Thank you.
You know, I, I um, my our youngest Ben is in his senior year in high school, and um, so I'm trying to. We're trying to go to lunch. We haven't done it every week so far this year, but we're trying to go to lunch at least once a week. And I've decided to to ask him to talk, think about a question before we get together. And um, I've already learned things that he's told me by me just asking him a question and letting it go and seeing without having a strong agenda about where I want the conversation to go. A similar sort of thing of I can really learn something I didn't know both what's good good with his life and what's not so good with his life by just listening. So, thanks. Yeah. Well, Sunday afternoon, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I thought it was pretty well. Um, I was camps were camping in my brain, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm active listening. And then Friday and Saturday, I, I taught um, teach a negotiation course, and part of my negotiation course is active listening. And so I'm teaching these active listening skills, and I have a student um, who talks a lot. And, and those of you who teach, you know this student, right? And about halfway through the class, I started, I realized I completely abandoned active listening to this person. And then I felt like, you know, I hope I and I let you guys down. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe today's class might be helpful for you with that student. We'll see. One more. Just that there's a difference between active listening and ignoring. Um, I was trying to listen, but once I kind of like with Brad, I got bored, I started ignoring and realized that I couldn't connect. Because part of one of the reasons why I want to one up or anything is to as a way to connect. And so I have to figure out if I am going to active listen, how I can connect, but not share and overpower that that person's story. Like I have to receive it in an active way. Mm -hmm. Good. Thank you. So in all of these, um, uh, all of these shares, there's this sort of. Um, I like how you all are talking about how you're learning about how to listen, you know, and how not to speak. Right. So David especially exemplifies this. Uh, well, there's a difference between ignoring someone and listening, right? But it can look the same almost. On the outside, um, and so, so there's this sort of um, skill in all of these practices. And the more we do it, the more we work at it, talk about it, the more we can learn about how to do it well. And then slowly, certain graces can begin to creep in into us through that sort of thing. Hey, Lane. Yes. Um, when I'm teaching the echoing process and, and active listening and things like that, one of the phrases I like to use is seeking to understand and like attitude wise if you're going into it and you're seeking to understand your chances of <coughs> accomplishing that are much greater yeah thank you yeah yeah very helpful reminder so let's shift um, and add add another practice for you to consider this coming week and that is um, speaking up so You'll note that when uh, James says slow to speak, he means be slow, but speak. He doesn't say don't ever speak. Uh, or you have, for example, in uh, both the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be forthright. Be simple. Be forthright. 
Tell the truth. And so today what I want us to think about then is this sort of notion of forthright, courageous communication in our speech. Um, for example, yesterday a friend of mine was talking about how um, um, he was had a um, getaway planned to go off to a cabin in the woods with some friends and um, his father was having some um, minor surgery on Wednesday but he felt like he had to stay and felt frustrated and he was telling another friend this and the other friend said uh, you know the other day I had a situation like that and he said what did you do and he said well I just asked my brother in this case what he wanted and my friend said, well, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> and so he said, so I went to my parents and I said, you know, you got surgery on Wednesday and I had this scheduled for a good while to go away on Thursday and Friday. And, um, and they said, well, we think you should go away. And he said, well, let's just play it by ear. And if you're doing well, then maybe so. And if not, I'll stay. And they said, okay. And he said, I went away because I was just forthright everything was so much better. I don't know, I don't know about for, for a lot of you all whether or not that's an advanced skill, but for me that's an advanced skill. Um, one of the, when, and so what I want to do is I want to kind of lay out um, three things that I think this sort of task, practice calls us to and three sorts of hurdles and restraints to this sort of practice, okay? So first, um, let's talk about three sorts of things it requires of us. First one is this, simplicity of speech, in which our words accord with our understanding of reality. In which our words accord with our understanding of reality. Now, we don't have to get into uh, postmodern language theory, you know, we can just acknowledge, look, when we use language, we're doing the best we can to describe reality as we see it. And the question is whether or not you're being honest about you're trying to describe reality as you understand it or not, right? And so that's the task. If you try to describe reality as you see it in a simple, forthright way, um, and we're, we're forthright about what we want, we're forthright about what we'd like to see, we're forthright about how we see things, and we're forthright about what we'd like to see happen. A second sort of thing that's required is courage in telling the truth. We'll, we'll get to this again when we talk about hurdles, but in many cases it requires immense courage to say things as we see it. I was, um, I'm not, and, and, I, and I'll, tell, I'll talk more about this, why I have been so slow and growing in this when I, we talk about hurdles and restraints, but uh, I've been mindful this week of one of the great moments uh, that required courage of me in speaking as I saw it was, was um, 16 years ago this today, this Sunday at least. Um, when September 11 happened, I'm a, I'm, for those of you who don't know, a lot of you know this already, plenty of you teasing me about it, but I'm a, I'm, because I'm a Christian, I'll put it this way, because I'm a Christian, I'm a pacifist. And um, the Sunday before September 11 happened, I started a sermon series on guess what? The Sermon on the Freaking Mount. <laughs> the Sunday before September 11 happened. 
And so on the Sunday following September 11, my text for that Sunday was the Beatitudes. And um, and I, you know, I'll never forget that Sunday because I really wanted to talk about something different, and it was terrifying. So the notion here of of trying to learn, and so there, even in that text where Jesus says, "Let your yes be yes and your no be no," say it how you see it, right? No, you, always we should always know. I think it was President Woodrow Wilson who one time said. If somewhere deep in the back of your mind you don't know that you might be wrong, then you're an idiot. <laughs> so we should always keep that in mind. And we should also keep in mind another kind of Anabaptist principle, Anabaptist theological principle, that of the so-called principle of fallibility. All right? So in very rare occasions, the Catholics have what they call the principle of infallibility, that when the Pope speaks with the consensus of the church that it's infallible, well, in Anabaptist traditions and kind of radical reform traditions, they've adopted what they call a principle of fallibility. That is, we know always we might be wrong. So always with this posture of I may be wrong, but nonetheless speaking the truth, having the courage to speak the truth as we see it and as we understand it, which requires a great deal of courage. Second sort of thing that it requires, so first, simplicity of speech. Second, courage in telling the truth. And three, again, we want to go back to this notion of discernment. You remember last week from Proverbs, was it 27 maybe, where we had, um, do not answer a fool according to his folly, for in doing so you may thereby make the fool think he's wise. And then the next verse says, um, answer a fool in his folly, because, and I don't remember the rest of the verse, but it's, it's contradictory advice, right? Answer the fool. Don't answer the fool. Well, how do you know which one it is? Well, you've got to figure it out. And he's not going to tell you how to figure it out. In other words, growing in these practices requires the capacity to figure out who's the fool you answer and who's the fool you don't. So it always requires discernment. Jesus himself will say, Jesus who says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. There's this sneaky text in John, the Gospel of John, where John's brothers come to him and they say, are you going up to Jerusalem to the festival? Anybody know this story? <coughs> and Jesus says, no. And then what happens? He goes. Or you have Jesus who says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Say, do not cast your pearls before the swine, because they may thereby come and trample upon you. Right? Uh, so we see Jesus always saying, tell the truth, but Jesus sometimes is cagey about telling the truth. Now this is disturbing, of course, but it's the text, right? I'm not making this up, it's in the text. Um, so it, it requires a sort of discernment. It requires judgment, I think, about the capacity of the other for rational conversation. It requires judgment about the potential for fruitful outcome. <coughs> It, it always requires this, this multifaceted notion of discernment. Here's a, so answer a fool or not, you know, and again, Jesus also says call no man fool. <laughs> so that's problematic because Proverbs, I'm trying to be true to Proverbs. So let's work out a Proverbs a second. Answer the fool or not. Um, here, here's some kind of practical stuff I've adopted for myself. Um, my rule of thumb has been that if um, 
someone is just being ignorant and foolish and showing contemptuous speech and it seems that nothing good can come of it, I try to keep my mouth shut. I was looking at a Facebook feed yesterday that by the time I was done at looking, scanning quickly, quickly through the 662 comments, I, I felt like there's enough fools on this line that I could spend all day long and they were fools from the right and fools from the left. And I thought, goodness! <laughs> but so, answer full according to his I don't, I don't think right now this is going to help anybody or anything if I jump into this mess. So I keep my mouth shut. On the other hand, uh, there are occasions in which um, not answering a fool, we'll keep putting it in scare quotes, not answering the fool can do great damage to a community of people or to other individuals and if I don't take responsibility for saying you know that's just not true and saying it in a public way then I'm letting damage to the community be propagated when I might can make a contribution by saying that is not true and here's what is true um, I, I will say that one of the things that really chastised, or not chastised me, but really encouraged me in this regard, is some years ago, I was, um, I had posted something online, I had published something online, and um, there was some really angry feedback in the comment section, and there was some foolish, ignorant stuff in there, and I decided this is the time for me not to say anything. I didn't know any of these people. Um, it was a, it was a, it was a, I think it was a Huffington Post article or something. I didn't know any of these people. I didn't have anything to say that I thought was going to be helpful. I kept my mouth shut. Uh, a day later, a student walked up to me on campus, and he said, "Are you Lee Camp?" And I said, "Yes." <laughs> and he said, um, "I wanted to let you know I've been watching the comment section on that article." And he said, "I've been waiting to see what you're going to do." And he said, I just wanted to thank you that you haven't said anything. And I have that student in my head every time I think about posting something online. Because I know there are people who do not know me, there are people who do not know you, but they are watching you. And they are going to make big judgments about you based upon what you say and when you don't say something. Um, it's important. It's really important. Um, so, that's, so first then, three things it requires at least. Simplicity of speech, courage in telling the truth, and discernment. Hurdles and restraints to speaking truthfully, speaking up. For me, one of the great, especially when I was younger, uh, one of the great hurdles and restraints was conflict avoidance. Um, I'm, I, especially when I was younger, I was highly conflict avoidant, and um, my my mother was an only child, and my mother loved us deeply, and it killed my mother when siblings argued. And it was a huge deal for her, but she was an only child. She had never, never had sibling arguments, so she'd watch us argue, and it was just always a huge deal. Plus, I was raised in a good southern conservative Christian home in which you're always nice. You're always nice. And not being nice was like, you know, the eighth deadly sin. <laughs> you got to be nice. 
and, and saying things that lead to conflict was not being nice. So highly conflict avoidant. And so I want to say very bluntly, being nice is not a Christian virtue. <laughs> Niceness is not a Christian virtue. Nowhere in the New Testament. I don't even know if there is a Koine Greek term for nice. <laughs> Someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know of one. What is there is telling the truth and being kind. But see, niceness oftentimes leads to deceit. Kind, being kind can, can coexist with telling the truth. Right? And so there's this notion then of truth-telling with kindness. Or it's what some, some folks would call there's rigorous honesty but not brutal honesty. There's learning to tell the truth quietly. I'll, I'll also say that if you're like me and you have to work at learning this, there will probably come times at which you're embarrassed by the fact that when you're learning to do it, your voice will shake. I remember 10 years ago, maybe less than that, I was in a meeting at work and something, an issue was being raised about something we were going to do in a public setting and it really triggered some of my stuff. And I felt strongly about this issue. And I'm sitting there with some of my peers and a couple of vice presidents and I start talking about it and my voice is shaking. And I was embarrassed to no end. But what I realized is that um, learning to tell the truth means willing to tell the truth even if my voice shakes. And then you can get better at telling the truth without your voice shaking. Or at least that's been my experience. The more I practice it, the more I can do it without... <laughs> Second, hurdle and restraint. Uh, the pain of it. It is painful sometimes to tell the truth. It's painful in what it stirs up. It's painful. Um, which relates to the third hurdle and restraint. I'll come back and talk about these together. And that is the fear of judgment, the fear of condemnation, and the fear of shame. The fear of judgment, the fear of condemnation, and the fear of shame. There's, um, there's, a, there's so much that can be said about this, but uh, one, one, um, one construct that I've been introduced to by a, a non-Christian therapist, a guy named Schnarch, um, he, he, he talks about the concept of self-validated intimacy. <coughs> self-validated intimacy. What he means by that is this. And oftentimes when we talk about intimacy, we mean by that that I'm going to share with you something that matters to me deeply and you're going to hear me and you're going to understand me and then you're going to say, yeah, I hear you. Thank you. Other, that's other validated intimacy. And other validated intimacy is really nice when you can get it. And any kind of long-term good relationship is going to have lots of moments of that. But what Schnarr says is that graduate degrees in becoming a human being require the capacity to do self-validated intimacy where you don't get other validated intimacy. So that goes like this. I tell you something that matters to me and that's important to me. And the other person says, I hear what you're saying. But you're just wrong. 
and I don't agree, and it makes me mad to hear you say it. <clears throat> and what Schnarr says is, that's what it means to grow up as a human being, to be able to do that and hold on to your capacities for maintaining some sort of even-keeled existence in the midst of that sort of tension. So, conflict avoidance, the pain, fear of judgment, condemnation, and shame, all its hurdles and restraints. Let me, let me turn to another kind of thing quickly, and, and that's this. Um, so far, generally, we've been talking about truth-telling about the way we see things, but of course, one of the, the great, another kind of graduate degree here, but it's not actually a graduate degree, it's like milk in the Christian tradition, which is very hard, and it's probably the place we all should start. And then that is not telling the truth about how we see things out there, but telling the truth about what's going on in here. That is, truth-telling about ourselves and the brokenness that we see in ourselves <coughs> That's the hard stuff right there. Um, you know, in, in the last two days, three, uh, well, Friday and today, um, two friends I have, how you doing? And they said, fine. Actually, that's not true. And then they gave me a, a short 90-second description of some crappy stuff, um, one of whom it was their fault and one of whom it was somebody else's fault, you know, if we want to label fault. And, um, and they told the truth about themselves. Right? Truth-telling about ourselves is the great question before us very often. Is will I, with someone who's trustworthy, tell the truth about myself? Um, and and I, I'm pretty convinced that one of the great practices of breaking Romans 6 and 7 and moving into Romans 8 <coughs> is moving into a place of where we tell the truth about ourselves. That I cannot move from I do what I do not want to do until I tell the truth to somebody else and saying, I'm doing what I don't want to do. And I did it again. 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 It's always the capacity to tell the truth about myself that opens up the space for new possibilities to enter into. So, this week, here's the homework. Um... Ask yourself, this is a series of questions and a, a thing. Number one is a series of a couple of questions. Uh, if there is some situation about which you have long held your tongue, are you thereby deceiving someone? If there's a situation about which you have long held your tongue, are you thereby deceiving someone? Are you not speaking? Are you being silent because of cowardice? Are you staying silent out of fear? If so, find a way to say something. And if you need a friend to encourage you to do it, ask the friend for encouragement before you go try to do it. Okay? So if there's something you've long been silent, ask yourself why. Is it fear? Is it cowardice? and then try to find a way to say something. Look, it, you know, you may have like five or ten of those kinds of areas, and so if you're really new at this, pick an easy one. 
don't jump into the hardest one first. Okay, practice with an easier one and get, get, get the help of somebody else to help you do it. Uh, number two kind of assignment. If there is some brokenness or secretiveness or sinfulness inside you that you have not ever acknowledged to anyone, find somebody to share it with. Again, I say, um, find someone trustworthy. And um, it's important, in my mind, to test people's trustworthiness and what you tell them. Because, for example, in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, where he talks about the discipline of confession, he first talks about the discipline of keeping one's mouth shut. And he says a community cannot have the discipline of confession unless it also has the discipline of a community that keeps its mouth shut. You don't do yourself or anybody any favors if you share stuff with someone who doesn't know how to keep their mouth shut. So if you're going to try this, number two, be smart about it. Do your own sort of um, discernment about it and find somebody to talk to. Hey, good? Going to try, try some of those? All right, very good. Thank you. Have a great week. Blessings. If I could get the email address if that's come around. Thank <laughs> you.